The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Living Well with Ann Beal. Our show is a health show, a lifestyle show, and an empowerment show rolled into one. Get ready to hear some stories of success, healthy living tips, and suggestions to get motivated and live your best life. Now, here is your host, Ann Beal. Good day to everyone. I'm your host, Ann Beal, and I have Aaron Wolf. He is a producer and director and filmmaker, and he's owner of a natural organic grocery store called Urban Rustic in Brooklyn, New York, and he's even run for Congress. And um, we just want to talk to him about all his pursuits and how he got into this and just learn all about him. Welcome to the show, Aaron. Thank you so much, Anne. I'm very glad to be here. Did I hear you laugh? Oh, I laughed when you said, uh, and he even ran for Congress. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Yeah, because uh, I, I, I saw that and I couldn't find, you know, a lot when I was reading about it. I just kind of caught that near the end. So I didn't get to investigate that too much. I know it was in 2014 that you ran Exactly. And did you win? I did not. No, I'm, I'm calling you from the, uh, the next town over from where I ran, in Elizabethtown, New York, in the beautiful Adirondacks. Yeah, see, because when I read all about you, imagining you in the political arena, I don't know, they just didn't seem to go together to me. And I thought, you know, probably when you, like most people, w- when you get into everything that happens in politics in your area, you start wanting to run so that you can change things? Well, I grew up in a really red, white, and blue family. Um, my father was a World War II vet, and uh, my mother was somebody who had us memorize uh, constitutional amendments around the dinner table. And even though it seems like a bit of a stretch or a little bit of an unusual trajectory to go from filmmaker to congressional candidate, for me it was kind of a natural thing, um, in part because of my upbringing, but in part because the films that I've worked on are really all about individual stories, people who are affected by our, our policy making. So when an opportunity arose to, to actually run for office, um, it was something I, I really jumped at. Well, you know, and that makes sense because your shows, I mean, those documentaries are all about social issues and changing. I mean, when I saw King Corn. I was like, man, I can't even believe that happens. And so I would think with all the ones you've done, that would, you're right, that would be a natural progression. And, you know, it was uh, an incredibly uh, enlightening, I would say sobering experience to run for office in America today. You know, we have a lot of a kind of a a cartoon idea of what it takes to to be a good uh, congressional representative. But the reality is, you know, you spend most of your time raising money, and at least in in that aspect, being a documentary filmmaker is a pretty good uh, training ground for for running for office because that's a lot of what you do as a filmmaker as well. Oh my gosh, yes, you have to raise a lot of money to do that. You do, 
and um, it's hard and it's challenging, but I think if you believe in what you're doing, it's a lot easier to, to try to make the case uh, to somebody to support your work. Did you have any idea when you ran what it's like with the media and, and everything, just the running part of it? Because it just sounds uh, horrible <laughs> in a lot of ways. Well, you would think that I would, uh, having you know interviewed dozens of lawmakers in the course of my, my documentary work. But um, it's a very different thing to be behind the camera uh, versus in front of the camera. Yeah. Yeah, which do you like better? You know, <laughs> uh, I, I can I can say with with great honesty that I like being behind the camera more. Wow! See, I would I would think I would too. Um, and yet, I mean, if it was back, well, I don't know. Maybe it's always been like that, but I kind of doubt it. And I think um, with the way you grew up, which is one of the things I want to talk about, because I'm always so fascinated when I see someone like you that is so successful and has so many endeavors that you've done so well. I'm just fascinated, like, how in the world you got to where you are, even as a kid. Like, what did your parents do as far as raising you that led you to where you are today? And um, and when I think of, you know, wanting even to make social changes or learning all about the areas you decided to make the documentaries on, I mean, they're all a part of this person who seems to care so much about our world. And um, and so I was wondering if you could share with us where, you know, kind of where it started and what it was like growing up. Well, my parents were both scientists, um, both teachers, and lived in the world of, of education and higher education. And, uh, you know, I think for that reason alone, I was drawn to the arts. You know, kids want to distinguish themselves from their, from their parents. But... My mother, in particular, really, uh, really reinforced this idea that everybody has a story, and she would uh, drive by a factory that looked interesting to her and say, "Kids, do you want to see what's inside that factory?" And we would say, uh, "I don't know," and she would say, "Come on, let's go take a look." And she would knock on the door, you know, of a furniture factory without any appointment or anything, and say you know, hello, I'm, I'm Pat Wolf. what do you do here? They'd say, well, you know, we make chairs, ma'am. And she would say, well, my children would love to know more about how chairs are made. Can we, could we come inside and take a look? You know, and nine times out of ten, they would say, sure. And I think that that had a lot to do with the choices that I made uh, growing up, that people's stories mattered, that people wanted to see things, and that sometimes all you have to do is knock on the door to find out something that you never would see otherwise. So your mom was a very curious person, wasn't she? She was curious, she was enterprising, um, and she still is. See, that sounds so cool. So you guys probably explored a lot of things. We did. Um, And, you know, instead of going to the grocery store to get food, we would go to the farmer's markets, which were not very common back then in the 70s. Or we would go to, you know, the wholesale fish market, and she would just see something that somebody was selling. You know, back then, people didn't eat mussels, and this isn't too much of a distraction, but, you know, mussels were 19 cents a pound. And she would see them, and she'd say, what are those, and how do you cook them? And we were very adventurous uh, with our with our dinner plates. 
and since you brought up King Corn, I think, you know, one of the things that uh, really struck me about the way that uh, such a rich country as ours came to have such a poor diet is that we, I think we, we stopped being as adventurous as a, as a country as we might have been with, with our cuisine. And, you know, even though you drive down a typical strip in America and you see uh, 20 different fast food restaurants, um, the story of King Corn reveals that much of what you see on those plates all came from the same place, which was some kind of transformation of corn, whether it was corn fed to animals for beef or corn turned into high fructose corn syrup or, you know, corn oil that, that French fries are, are fried in. And whether King Corn was, you know, a major factor or a minor factor, it certainly seemed like that film and its success uh, had a role in, in broadening the conversation about food in America. And I think what we see now uh, in so many ways is that we're really rescuing a lot of our, our adventurousness with food and rescuing our connection to, to the land and, and to, to the things that we eat. Well, and, you know, learning, you know, um, about the King Corn uh, documentary and, and that corn is in most things, you know, it made me think of all these women because I'm a counselor and a life coach, and I see all these women and as a wellness coach always helping them to lose weight. And they are eating things, you know, that they think are low-carb. Um, they're trying to do the low-carb things, but they're eating processed food even if it's processed right. like a diet kind of food, and yet they're still gaining weight. And, it, and it's, it's very frustrating because all these people are out there thinking they're eating healthy. And uh, Curtis, gave the, Curtis Ellis that I interviewed, he gave the um, interesting analogy of the Dr. I think it was Dr. Seuss. He said that there was the show where it spit out, this machine spit out food at this restaurant, and it was all the same goop, but it was in different shapes, like a burger. And this, then the same exactly. goop came out the shape of fries. And it was very, I thought about that. I thought, that is, that is really true, what's happened. And, and what I loved, and what so many people love when they talk about Europe, or even the Adirondacks, where you are, is that it's so different. And everything is so, all these little shops, and the uh, markets on the street, and, you know, it's so unique. But here... We have, when you go town to town, everything's looking exactly the same now. Right. Well, you know, we made a lot of choices in the 20th century that had to do with um, just, just one consideration. When you look at our agriculture policy, for example, you know, we were all about how can we grow more food for less? How can we increase that volume? And, you know, we did things like um, genetic modification. We did things like... Uh, heavy pesticide use. We did things like uh, monocropping, meaning we just grow one thing on one field. And we really created a country in which, you know, all the tomatoes come from Florida and all the corn comes from the Midwest and all the lettuce comes from, you know, California. And I think we lost a lot of those traditions that you described in, in Europe or in, in the little towns. But it's very heartening to see that changing. And it is. You see it everywhere. Um, what I think is the biggest concern, though, right now, is that in more affluent communities and, you know, university towns and educated areas, you, you, see, uh, you see that stuff coming back. But um, what we don't want to have is a 
a two-food system society where uh, wealthy and educated people have access to to better quality and more diverse and more local food, and um, some of the less affluent communities don't. I don't think that that's that's fair. Yes, and you know, it's so cool, some of the um, documentaries like Farm Truck and things like that, showing you can have a garden anywhere. And it's very motivating to me to put my garden in pots. or um, and, and really, you can grow lettuce and spinach in almost anything. And uh, I know New Yorkers do it. They, they grow on their rooftops. They grow on their patios, their own little gardens. And uh, yeah. that wouldn't be very expensive to do. No, it's incredi- and it's incredibly fulfilling. Um, but, you know, I think when you ask most kids where, where, where milk comes from, you know, they think it comes from a carton or it comes from the grocery store. And those little gardens that you speak of uh, really have, um, we've we've forgotten how exciting it is. And not just that you can make a nice tomato in your backyard or on your rooftop. It's that uh, when when we had other people grow that food, we stopped realizing um, all the joy that comes with with making something. So when you were a kid and yeah. you were going with your mom to the farm markets and all the stuff that your your family really kind of instilled in you, it sounds like they taught you to really love America. And um, did you, so did you start with loving natural food or did you start more with falling in love with filmmaking? I started with loving America, as you said. You started with loving America. You know, I have had a kind of uh, uh, deeply ingrained patriotism from as far back as I can remember. My mother was, her family was from the Deep South, from the Mississippi Delta, and my father was from Brooklyn. And so I grew up with exposure to these very different worlds. And I think, you know, in some ways... um, I love this country because of, of, of our diversity, because of all we have, and because we're always renewing you know, the possibility of who we can be. I think we're living in a time in which Americans are, are feeling insecure in a lot of ways, and, and many of them are feeling frightened about the future. But I think that we have, we have faced these kinds of challenges before, and we've always succeeded. And you mentioned Detroit um, mm-hmm. before we we went on the air. And I think Detroit is an example of a place that uh, is having to reinvent itself again. And so all of those things, um, you know, food and filmmaking, probably are are great interests. But at the at the core, what I've loved about my career is that it's allowed me to see so much of this this great country. Golly, I can imagine. Yeah, with all the all the documentaries you've made, and um, you know the the thing that I loved about Detroit. I mean, it's amazing. I I you know I was young, coming out of college, and so going up there, I thought I thought it was going to be like a really different place, and I was thinking cold, and it was cold, and in the summer I was very surprised how humid it was. I just didn't know it was humid because it's up north, um, but I had fun. I cross country skied on golf courses, which I'd never done before, and so there was just a lot of really fun stuff that I did there. And I think people that because I'm from Little Rock, Arkansas, and everybody would go, "You like it there?" 
And I was like, I love it. And they're like, that's, they just, everything they'd heard. And that's why I, when I saw the documentary, when they caught the name Beyond the Motor City, it's like everyone who thought of Detroit, they thought of cars and plants. Right. They, it's almost like they thought of it more like a Pittsburgh being an industry town. And Pittsburgh's kind of reinvented itself. And, uh, but I was telling them, you know, I got to walk, you know, walking on the, um, Lake Michigan when it was frozen and going skiing and they just had no idea no idea I had so much fun up there um and so you know it's really kind of broke my heart what's happened to Flint and not just Flint I mean Pontiac a lot of the towns and so uh I've been so excited that a lot of really incredible things are happening up there it's exciting, but I think, you know, the very um, decay and abandonment and, uh, you know, industrial decline that we've seen in Detroit has also created some opportunities. Uh, when we were there, we saw young people from Europe moving to Detroit because you could get a house for 2000 bucks. Wow. So I met these, you know, young Danish people that had built a community in the heart of Detroit. And I think, you know, that... I don't want to be too sunny bunny about it, but that's, <laughs> that's sort of the promise of America, is that sometimes uh, adversity creates opportunity. Well, and how did you come about, like, was that, what was your first documentary you ever did, or your first film? Well, the first film I ever did um, was about uh, a, an artist, an Italian artist, who came to America with his family and kind of made it as a sculptor and served in the Second World War fighting in Italy. And he was a really interesting guy because he loved to tell stories. Um, And not all of his stories seemed to be true. (laughs) But I had to kind of confront this this question about, uh, was my job to, you know, correct him? Was I a 60 Minutes reporter? Or was my job to kind of let him tell his stories and make it a kind of a celebration of, of his character. And, and that was a really instructive thing for me. Um, the next film I did was about uh, baseball in Cuba. Oh, that was your second one. That was the second big one. And it was really uh, another great experience because it was a lesson in perspective. And the film was called Greener Grass, in part because at that time... You know, we still hadn't reopened relations with Cuba. And and I loved the way that each culture kind of looked at the other one and uh, found things that, you know, they thought, oh, the grass is greener. Um, well, and I, me, I didn't... Go ahead, sorry. Yeah, uh, for me, that you know, one of the biggest lessons in filmmaking, but I think also in life, is learning to try to put yourself in someone else's uh, viewpoint and, and put yourself in the position of looking at the world with different eyes. So how did you come about deciding to go to Cuba and do this documentary? Well, I was, you know, maybe this is very con- connected with my, my patriotism, but I've always been a huge baseball fan, and I've always I've loved the game uh, in ways that, you know, beyond kind of hits and runs, and I've always thought it was a very poetic game. And um, it's, this is not my, my theory, but, you know, one of the former commissioners of baseball, uh, 
Bart Giamatti, who had been a scholar before he was a, a, a baseball administrator, always talked about this idea of home plate and home in baseball. And he said that, you know, all the other games that we like to watch, like football or basketball or hockey or soccer, all are on some level or another a war metaphor. They're all kind of like about armies facing each other. And, you know, maybe the the basket in basketball or the, you know, the end zone in, in football is, is the enemy's capital city. And he liked baseball because baseball really wasn't about war for him. It was more about life. And in baseball, as in life, in order to succeed, you have to leave home. But uh, in order to, to kind of valorize that success, you you come back home. And there was this, this rhythm of leaving home and coming back. Um, that's so poignant for me in, in the game. Uh, it's also poignant for me in my life. You know, I feel like when you go to make a film, you leave home, and then you kind of go out and gather your stories, and you go around the bases, um, but then you come back home to put it all together. Wow. And so, you know, what do you think of what's happening with Cuba now? Uh, I'm certainly in favor of, of reopening the uh, relationship with Cuba. I think that um, uh, we're always better when we can face each other um, and we don't develop these prejudices that happen when we build walls. Uh, I think baseball is a great way to get us back together because it's a game that we both love so thoroughly. Um, and I'm, I'm frankly excited. I think, it's, I think it has a lot of positives for, for the future and certainly a lot of positives for um, one-on-one interchange. I think that you know, individuals relate to each other sometimes a lot, a lot more successfully than governments do. And this opening with Cuba is going to give a lot of us a chance to, to meet each other one-on-one. Well, I, I don't know if a lot of people realize that, first of all, how beautiful Cuba is. And that back, I mean, I remember, you know, uh, movie stars going to Cuba a long time ago, that that was a big place to go. I don't know if it was in the 50s or 60s, but they used to, sure. I think it was before that. That was just like this beautiful place to go. And uh, Fidel Castro kind of took over and, you know, everything. But I, uh, I I do know that, you know, most people don't realize how beautiful it is. Well, I'm, you know, one of the things that I've really come to appreciate is that, you know, most places have some, some, some wonderful beauty about them. And, uh, and I think, you know, whether they go there for the beaches, um, what they'll come away with is the chance to meet some people that are, that are different. And, and that's often the most beautiful thing of all when you go somewhere is, is, is the people. And as I said, like learning to look at a different perspective on the world. So how long were you there? I think, you know, in a couple trips, I was there over 11 weeks. Uh, it was a very different uh, time, of course, and most Cubans that I met, certainly outside of Havana, had never met an American before. And that was pretty fun to feel like you were, you were helping them to fill out a picture. You know, they hadn't really gotten the most positive messages about our country from, from their government. 
and it was nice to be able to um, buck some of the stereotypes that they had. Wow. Yeah, that would be really cool. So when you were a kid, did you start making films, or did you do this as an adult? Did you major in college? When I was in college, I majored in, uh, I was a double major in political science and in in art. And uh, I guess I sort of reasoned that documentary was the middle ground between those two things. I always liked films, but I didn't really have a movie camera when I was growing up. And uh, I loved to paint. And I guess, you know, filmmaking was such a, it was such a, it was such a strong conviction that I had when I was in college that this was what I was going to do in the world, um, that I just, I'm, I, I made my way, you know, I just argued my way into the, into my first job. Um, and it was interesting because, you know, I didn't have a lot of spending money when I graduated from college and I ended up going up to Alaska where I worked as a commercial fisherman. Uh, that in the 1980s when I graduated, there was this story that you could go to Alaska and you could just show up on the dock and, you know, somebody would give you a job and you'd walk away with a big pile of cash. And uh, that was really only partly true, but that was what it's like when you're 22. And I went up and I found my way onto a crab boat in Dutch Harbor, Alaska. And that was a tremendous growing experience. Um, working in the sea, you know, pulling this this food out of the water um, and then selling it. Often in that era, we sold to uh, Japanese merchants that had come to Alaska to buy crab for their, their sushi restaurants in Tokyo. And they would pack these crab in sawdust and leave from these airstrips in Alaska and be in Tokyo the next day, you know, serving up the, the stuff that we'd caught. So it was this really, like, wonderfully adventurous window into the world. But I ended up with, you know, enough money to kind of support myself while I, while I looked for a job in film, and I ended up um, having my whole film upbringing in Latin America and got wow. a job with a, with a Peruvian film director and ended up staying for two years and just doing everything on the set, you know, makeup, wardrobe, lighting, camera, uh, carrying boxes, and really, with the exception of, of running for Congress in 2014, I've been making films ever since. That's where you got the apprenticeship kind of mentality from. So you're training people now with your Mosaic Films. Exactly. Uh, yeah, that's really cool. So I would think passing that on is so wonderful that you do that. How many apprentices do you have? I just have one right now. <laughs> you have one, and, and is that uh, Ian? Yeah, that, that's Savannah. No, Ian's Ian is graduated. Ian is a, is a tremendously accomplished filmmaker now. I think he's doing his fifth or sixth film after King Corn, uh, all of which have been really good and really successfully made a beautiful film about Chinese food in America called The Search for General So. He did a film about uh, the night sky, about light pollution. And um, and now my current uh, assistant and I are working on a film about uh, green energy and kind of looking at the future of 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 how energy is going to be made and distributed. And that's Savannah. 
That's Savannah. That is awesome. That's so exciting. See, we wonderful. We are going to take a break. And when we get back, we just want to hear more about what you've done, you know, recently. And then also about how in the world you got into having a natural organic grocery store. You know, I think it's funny they call it organic, right? Which it just means it's, I think that people say you should call that food and everything else like chemical or something. Right. Because it's always just been food. Like, so I guess I'm growing organic in my backyard. So when you get back, we just want to hear about all your endeavors now. And um, thank you so much, Anne. And and just like how long you've had this Thor and things like that. So you guys hold on right here, and we'll be right back after break to hear more from Aaron on his life as a filmmaker and his natural grocery store. us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. Sunshine Herbs in Saginaw, Texas on Main Street, Business 287 has all of your supplement needs and healthy food products. So, my suggestion for you, visit visit Sunshine Herbs today and let their knowledgeable staff who know all their products and their naturopathic doctor lead you to a life of health and wellness so that you too can live well. Life Solutions Coaching and Counseling in Fort Worth, Texas is a full-service wellness clinic providing individual, group, and family counseling, one-on-one coaching for life and wellness, and naturopathic treatments of medical massage therapy combined with essential oils to ensure you reach your health and wellness goals. Sessions are available in person or by phone. Get started on your new life today. Just call 817-232-1363 or go to lifesolutionscoachingandcounseling.com or email them at lifesolutions.com cc at yahoo.com we're on facebook along with some of the greatest minds of the world and that includes you visit us on facebook at voice america empowerment you are listening to living well with ann beal we'd love to hear from you with comments and questions about the show Please send us an email to ablivingwell at gmail.com. That's ablivingwell at gmail.com. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back. I am chatting with producer-director Aaron Wolf, the filmmaker behind the award-winning documentaries and acclaimed PBS special King Corn and Blueprint America Beyond the Motor City, Dying to Leave and the global face of human trafficking and smuggling and greener grass. And we talked about in the last segment, Cuba, baseball, and the United States. And my favorite, which was King Corn, I talked to you guys about in three shows back. And so if you haven't gotten a chance to watch King Corn, I just really want you guys to go get it, watch it on Netflix, whatever you can do. And um, Aaron, are you there? I am. Ah, awesome. Well, it, you know, the documentaries are so fascinating. And I, I watched um, all the ones that you sent to me, and then I watched one more. And uh, it just, you know, it just seems like such a neat life being able to travel and do these documentaries. And I, I wanted, you know, I hear from so many teenagers 
that are trying to decide on their future, right? They're in, they're in high school and they want them to pick a track so right. they can go into an academy or, and they have such a hard time. I can't even imagine in ninth grade because I know people in college that don't know what they want to do or pe- adults that don't know what right. they want to do. And so what's fascinating about you is it sounds like you found your way and knew pretty early what you really wanted to do. I did indeed. You know, I, I, it just seemed like it was a way to, um, to, to do some of what you just described, to travel, to meet people, to, to listen to people, to tell their stories, and, and hopefully to make some change in the world. You know, it's very hard to measure the impact of a film like King Corn or the film we did about human trafficking. But, um, but I think, you know, this world only gets better when we, when we step up and address what we see is wrong. Um, so that's, it's been a great pleasure. But it's not an easy life. And, you know, as I said before, everybody with an iPhone is a filmmaker now. And there's a lot of great stories being told and probably more, more films than there are outlets for films. And I think one of the challenges is, you know, you'll put three to five years into one of these projects and then when it's over, you kind of start, you have to start again. And uh, it's certainly not as clear a path as some are out there, but it's been wonderful for me. Yeah, it just looks like it has been. You know, the human trafficking we didn't talk about in the last segment. I actually have a friend who who does actually has done a documentary and raised the money to get it out there and I think she's just now getting it out there. And her passion is to help these women um who are in the slave trade as well to give them um uh, skills so that they won't be marketed off and by their parents or family members, you know, into the uh, human trafficking. Apparently, if they have a skill, if they can sew or things like that, they can make money, and then they're actually deemed worthy. Um, and so that's what hers is about. And yours, the human trafficking. Where did you Where did you go for that? Was it here in the we U.S.? We filmed in uh, eighteen countries, and what we wanted to do was to kind of look at the ways in which, even though these stories came from different, you know, were all around the world, um, there was something similar about all of them. And what's so striking about your friend's project is that, you know, there was so rarely an alternative uh, for these people. So there was a demand, you know, in the developed world for whether it's, you know, people, you know, the sex workers or agricultural labor. Um, and that demand was so voracious that I think people didn't realize that, you know, they were essentially consuming human lives. Well, it, and there are, you know, in the, in, I think I didn't realize until probably 10 years ago about the human trafficking in, in the U.S. And I had a friend that works for the Labor Department, and he was shutting down Chinese buffets that had all these workers that they'd brought over, and they were actually slaves. It's incredible. I mean especially for someone like me whose family comes from the Deep South, you know, slavery was a word that I associated with a history book and um, something that I just assumed, like so many Americans, that we had uh, put behind us. But the fact is the practice thrives. It thrives, you know, perhaps in some ways 
more than it did when it was practiced openly. And uh, for all the things that you can feel hopeful about in this world, that's one that's really daunting. Uh, I began to tell that story in part because I met someone like your friend that, you know, told me over the course of, of one one dinner uh, 25 of these stories, and I had never heard anything like that. So, you know, again, this was another chance to tell a human story that really, you know, came out of uh, some, I think, some decisions we made as a society. It's, I think I think another theme in, in a lot of my work is this whole idea of unintended consequences. You know, when you look at the, the modern slave trade and we look at human trafficking, some of what helped that to grow are things that, you know, maybe a lot of us would probably not disagree with. Yes. The globalized economy and, and, and trade across the world and communication across the world, um, even, you know, the fact that the Berlin Wall was torn down uh, opened up a lot of this movement of peoples. And I think when you look at some of my films, you see that choices we make or things that happen sometimes have consequences that we would never imagine. Like, who would have thought that the Berlin Wall falling, which seemed like an unmitigated good thing to everyone, um, might have actually contributed to the, the kind of practices that we see in, in human trafficking? You know, with King Corn, um, who would have thought that all the marvelous innovations we made in agriculture in the 20th century would lead to us creating foods that made people sick? I think something that distinguishes me from some other filmmakers that are out there is that I try to be very respectful of everybody. And I really, um, I don't see the world as a battle between good and evil, as some people do. And I think that, you know, many things that we do to try to make the world a better place end up having consequences that are, that are terribly negative, but it, it doesn't make me want to go out and blame the people that made the changes in the first place. It makes me want to say, this is the natural course of things, and sometimes when we make a choice, um, there are consequences that we can't foresee, and so we as a society have an obligation to address those things and try to correct them. And maybe in our correcting, we make other mistakes, but that's sort of how we evolve. Um, people saw King Corn and they said, you know, why didn't you go after Monsanto or why didn't you go after the big corporations? And the fact is, I, I don't see big corporations as being inherently evil. I see them as, uh, in some ways, trying to achieve things in different ways. And um, I think I can point to a number of examples of when companies acted incredibly responsibly, um, such as Johnson & Johnson after the Tylenol scare. Right. And uh, I wish the world were as simple as some people want to make it, that it's all black and white or that it's, you know, there's, there's good and there's evil. But I think the fact is that all of those qualities are in all of us. And, you know, one of the things I've tried to do in my work is 
show that the world is more complicated than some people want it to be. And I, I think that, you know, humans, we know so little that we're just trying to, if you think of it, life has, you know, you're trying to tack a sailboat <laughs> across the lake and you have to correct. I mean, you correct and so then you realize you overcorrected the sail and you have to pull it back and so you tack back and forth and so once you realize, okay, I went too far to the left, you go back to the right. You know, I went too far to the right, you go back to the left and the ch- wind changes and everything but you make it across the lake and if you look at it that you made it across or you can look at it as, look at all the mistakes I made and how long it took. Well, that's a very poignant <laughs> analogy. Yeah. I hope you use that in your life coaching because that's. Well, I should. I should. Nice I'll make metaphor. sure. I do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I think you know, blame is what America. I mean, I can't. You know, you hear blame constantly on the media, and I work with families, and I'm constantly showing them that blame is a distraction. That when you're blaming, as I had a lady even yesterday, she was had met with a teacher and was trying to talk to her husband about some things about their daughter and and said, we probably need to start talking to her differently. And he immediately said, well, if she's like that, that's just weird and it's your fault. And right. so for me, it was like, you know, that's just a waste of time. It doesn't, like, you're raising kids. I mean, who knows whose fault is what? I mean, you're going to make mistakes, period. Um, but it's a distraction to start blaming and fighting when all you need to do is work on helping her now. And uh, all the blaming about slavery, everything that happened. I mean, I'm, I'm always like, why are you focusing on something way in the past when it's happening today? It's happening today. And if we really cared, we would be focusing on stopping that today and not letting it happen anymore today. And it's, you know, you look at all the different races that have been enslaved. And, uh, and there are people all across America all different races that are being held prisoner and having to work, not get paid, and all they get is room and board. They get to get to live somewhere free, which is like a, a cot in a room with like a hundred people. And I, I think that so many people here don't know that. And uh, getting that word out and truly raising money to stop that is what we really should be focusing on. I mean, I had no idea that there's the the oil decks or whatever you call those off of Florida. Those um, that they transport people and hold them there and then move them around. Hmm. Well, pretty scary. When you make a case for civility, I think the best place to really look for that, you know, that change may be in our politics as well. Exactly. I I don't know how we went from a place that, um, you know, in which you didn't have to agree with everybody about everything to get things done, to a place in which we are so so tribalized. Um, that we can't even have that dialogue. And, uh, you know, I don't know how great civilizations fall apart. You know, we look at history and uh, you look at places that cut down too many trees and then they couldn't have enough fuel to continue. People say that that's what happened at Easter Island. But, you know, I see the roots of our decline in this country in our inability to, to respect the opposition. And, you know, it's, it's no secret that I ran as a Democrat in 2014, and that's, that's the party that, uh, whose values are, are closer to my own. But um, I also got more Republican votes than 95% of the other Democrats that ran in 2014. And I think that's in part because the message was not, I tried to not make it a message about partisanship and 
who's, which team is wearing which color shirt, but really about, about issues. And uh, if there's one regret that I have about not winning that race is that um, I think somebody who has done what I've done in my career, which is to try to bring lots of sides together uh, to tell a story in my films, that I didn't get a chance to do that in Congress, at least this time. Because I think when you look at the presidential debates now and you look at what's happening uh, with this polarization, um, I think that that is probably one of the, the most worrisome things in our country. And I'm a very optimistic person about our future and our ability to correct and, and tack across the lake, as you say. Yeah. But, um, but I hope we can find a way to be more civil. Um, in, in our in our discourse. Well, and I'm I just know that you would have been incredible at it. I do know oh. that uh, you know some people. Uh, it is weird that some people win the first time. Most people don't, you know. And I grew up next door to the Clintons, and so I uh, I know that he when he lost, he went out <laughs> for years asking people what he did wrong, and he learned a lot. Um, and so for you, it sounds like you learned a lot as well. I did indeed, and you know, there there were pessimistic things, and certainly the the role of money in politics was one of the most depressing uh, aspects of the whole experience. But there were so many heartening things as well. Um, I can recall, you know, in the summer of 2014, being in you know an American Legion Hall basement with 60 or 70 people, and. Uh, on a beautiful summer's eve when there was plenty of things that are probably a lot more exciting to be to be doing and i had this very powerful moment where i realized that we were all there me and everyone else in the room because despite all the dysfunction despite all the polarization despite all the the money and the corruption in politics we were all there because uh we believed and we still believed and I think that I think that the vast majority of Americans still believe. Um, and so, whether or not I run for office again, or whether I try to address these things in my 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 film work, um, I, I do remain hopeful. Well, and I think part of the apprenticeship that when you do that, I mean, you see such goodness and excitement and passion in these young people wanting to get into film. Um, I, I and, do. I and, do. And being able to channel all your knowledge. and I mean, that's got to be exciting to have that passion, to install that and instill that in other people. Well, it's exciting, but it's also, you know, it's a good deal for me because their energy and their excitement and their passion become really the battery power for all we do. Yeah, I would um, think. Yeah, and that's true with the film. You also mentioned, you know, the 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 grocery in 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 Brooklyn. One of the reasons why we opened that um, is because we had just made this film, King Corn, you know, which looked at uh, some of the the downsides of uh, our industrialized food system, and naturally, you know, we kind of asked ourselves, like, well, could could we do something different? And the fact is, it's pretty challenging you know a lot of my friends said 
Gee, Aaron, you found the only thing dumber than documentary <laughs> to put your money into, which is <laughs> the food business. But um, that place has survived and thrived, I think, in part because it really strives to kind of create a genuine connection between people and, and where their food comes from. And uh, it's funny, when you make films, you spend a lot of time uh, traveling, as you said, interviewing people, seeing people in the world doing really meaningful things, like your friend who's, who's fighting human trafficking. Mm-hmm. And... Sometimes that comes with uh, joy, at, with the opportunity to, to meet people and be inspired by people. But sometimes it comes with a little bit of a frustration. You know, there's a tension, I think, between a, a participatory life and an observational life. And I think when you make films, you're kind of observing a lot, and it makes you want to participate as well. So that's kind of the, the origin of that, of that shop. And um, it looks like we're going to be reopening uh, an old tavern here in the Adirondacks with the same idea. We live in the Champlain Valley where there's all sorts of young people coming back to agriculture and making beautiful products, uh, cheeses and uh, you know, maple syrup from the trees. And uh, the oldest tavern in the Adirondacks was opened in 1808 when Thomas Jefferson was president. And one of the things I'm going to be working on in the next year is getting that place reopened and getting that to be a, a kind of home base for a lot of the local food movement that's going on around here. Well, and it, it's so in now. I mean, it, and my mom was so funny because she called to tell me one opened up in Hot Springs, right outside of Hot Springs Village. And uh, mm. she's like, it is so, it is getting so popular. And she's in her 80s. And so she loved going, seeing fresh, and organic, and having homemade butters and all the stuff she used to do when she was younger. I remember as a kid, her canning and, and doing everything. And so I, it's getting to where it's so much where everyone's wanting to go, go back to your grassroots and go back to farms and making your own food. And and when I saw your store online, the Urban Rustic grocery store, it is pretty. I mean, you made that place look nice. Well, I think it, you know, it should be a community building experience when you go to, to, to buy food or to have a bite. And it's not just a kind of, you know, sterile room with fluorescent lighting. It should be a place where you feel, uh, warm and community and you get something more than just a bite to eat well yeah i saw tables and chairs see i thought it was a grocery only but it's not it's also like a cafe yeah it, it kind of evolved into a market cafe we you know the grocery business is is high volume and low margin and pretty hard to get into on a small scale so we kind of evolved into a, a kind of a market cafe rather than just a, a, a straight grocery you know what they say when these places open? They say the same thing about Whole Foods, that when it comes to a neighborhood, it doesn't choose a neighborhood by financial, um, but it, when it moves to a neighborhood, the, the prices of the homes double. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Well, and I, that's amazing. That's now. Yeah. And so you're helping, you're helping raise up all everyone's mortgages by having a shop like that. <laughs> oh, See? Helping people. <laughs> I'll well, never I get elected. You'll never get elected. <laughs> That's funny. One of the things, though, that I, I, you know, we talked about some pessimistic things about, you know, money and politics and human slavery and all that. But one of the more optimistic things I've heard with respect to real estate prices that you just mentioned is that 
the fastest growing real estate prices in the country now are in places that are kind of called walkable communities. Yeah. So suddenly this idea of, of walking to work and living in a community that has enough density to, to either get on public transportation or use a bicycle. And, you know, one of the nice things about having these young people that you mentioned that, that have worked with me over the years is I've seen that change. I've seen that, you know, all I wanted to do was to get a motorcycle or get a car, get away when I was, when I was a kid. And yes, of course, you know, young people want that as well. But I also see them wanting these things, you know, the very opposite of what my parents' generation wanted, which was, you know, space and suburbia. And I see young people now wanting to live closer together, wanting to walk to work, wanting to eat food that was grown in the next town. And, you know, that's that's a very healthy trend, and I'm very excited about that. And it is healthier for us because you eat in season and you eat local honey. And if you do local, which I'm always saying, you know, eat local, buy from your farmers, eat natural. Um, and I tried to live. I've had to move many times, though, because I love biking and I bike to work. But over time, every small community, Plano, Colleyville, eventually they build up and I can't, I can't bike anymore. It's crazy. They got they got rid of the ability to bike. And I've always thought, you know, Oregon and Colorado and all them, they are putting bike trails in on every road. <laughs> and, but, but so is Detroit. Yeah, and, that's cool. You know, when we talk about places that, that are reinventing themselves, Detroit, um, which actually, you know, Henry Ford was a, was a bicycle maker. And there's something very beautiful and poignant about the fact that the home of the American automobile is now building bike paths bike and paths. understanding mm-hmm. that we need to connect on a more, you know, human level than than a highway interchange. I have two questions before we close. Um, number one, I want people to be able to get a hold of you. Um, sure. So how would they reach you if they wanted to get a, you know, they can find go out? To Mosaic Films, Inc. That's M-O-S-A-I-C-F-I-L-M-S-I-N-C.com. And uh, there's certainly a contact there. And um, they can look at some of the films there that we're working on, some of the ones that we've finished over the years. They can go to kingcorn.net to see a trailer for that film and to find out how they can see a copy of that. And uh, I encourage everyone to stay in touch. Um, And certainly if they have stories that they believe should be told in the world um, and they want to, to collaborate on that, they can reach out. And um, uh, I'm incredibly honored to have the chance to speak to you and so grateful for the chance to, to reach out to folks across the country. We thank you so much for just telling us all that you have about what you do and, and you know, letting people know it's such an exciting fil- film career going into documentaries because most people don't do documentaries but if they're interested in how to do it and uh, apprenticeships and even how to get a hold of you and that's all really wonderful and we just thank you for sharing your life with us it's my pleasure and it's lovely to hear your your familiar accent from that part of the world 
<laughs> yeah, it's funny. I love I love it here. And uh, having our show from Texas is always really cool. So I try to always highlight that if I can. But we thank you so much. And you guys, if you want to coach with me or counsel, again, just contact Life Solutions at 817-232-1363. And I will get with you. In the meantime, thank you so much, Aaron, and everyone for listening. And we just hope that you guys have a wonderful week and live well. Thank you again for joining us. Living Well with Ann Beal airs live every Wednesday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We can't wait to see you again next week. 